Uh, well, I want to start this morning by asking you a question. What is it that makes you cry? What is it that affects you so deeply inside that all you want to do is go and lock yourself in your room and then just weep? Uh, as we began reflecting last week in, in Psalm 146, we saw that the world gives us many reasons why we might cry. And all we need to do is just turn on the news uh, of a weeknight and we'll discover a world full of suffering, a world full of wars and terrorism and AIDS and cancer and, and the list goes on. You know, I suspect that it, it's really those things uh, that are the things that bring us to tears. They're so out there. They're so uh, detached from us and so often. I can remember at least four times in the last year. The first one was uh, when I saw uh, the violent riots that happened in Yinchi, uh, in the northern part of China. Uh, on the news, the was rapid. see uh, bodies just lying warring against each other in that province. And it just absolutely broke my heart to see humans doing such things. Uh, the second time, a number of us know him. Uh, his wife was with uh, pancreatic cancer. He loved uh, her, his wife. Yes. I'm sure you, when I heard that news, like many people, I just wanted to weep and cry for hours. This year, been time away from home, and if you've ever been away from home, away from family and friends, and away from your home country, it's very easy to feel lonely. And I can remember times this year when that has been something that has made me cry. But I know that the worst one, the worst one of all this year, was uh, you know Chinese New Year's Eve, uh, when I heard that uh, a Japanese friend of mine, who I'm very close to. Uh, who studied as an international student in Australia, uh, who became a Christian during that time, you know, had been serving there for another number of years, helping others to know Jesus. She'd been suffering from depression in her life, uh, and one day, on that Chinese New Year's Eve, she decided to take her own life. Uh, in the backyard, she hung herself uh, from the side of the house. Friends, I can assure you, I wept bitterly when I saw that thing. But what about you? What is it that makes you cry? Have you seen someone affected by sickness? Has one of your loved ones passed away? Has someone close to you suffered from a terrible disease? Or have you been hurt by your, your husband or your wife? One of your children walked away from the faith. Have you felt desperately lonely, deserted? Have you felt overwhelmed by sorrow to the point that it almost breaks you inside? So we live in a world that is full of suffering. And if you've never suffered much before in your own life, I guarantee you that if, by God's grace, you hang around long enough that you will 
live long enough to see it. You will experience suffering, I'm sure, that will bring you to tears in the end. But when it comes, we need to know how are we going to deal with it? How are we going to live through such time? Well, last week we, we saw that one person alone who we have to trust through the trials of life is, is God alone. The question comes, doesn't it? How are we meant to trust God when we are going through such suffering? How are we meant, meant to trust God when life's trials just seem to crush up inside? What are we supposed to do when all we want to do is just break down inside? In Psalm 102, starts with the caption at the top there. A prayer of one of Hitler, when he is saved, pulls out his complaint for the Lord. Make sure you always read out the caption when you're reading a psalm. It's actually a part of the psalm itself. It's very important for us. You see, God has, has given us this psalm to help us in our suffering. Here is a man we can identify with. Here is a man who understands us, who knows how we feel, who knows how we think. And here is a man who can teach us how we ought to respond through the afflictions of life. Well, the psalm begins, uh, as we read before, with his desperate cry out to the Lord. Then verses 1 and 2. Hear my prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. See, as he cries out for help, can you sense the desperation in his voice? Five times he cries out to God, Please, don't turn a blind eye to my suffering and my trial. Have you ever felt like that in the suffering? Have you ever felt like God is he's not there? Or even worse, that he's there but he doesn't care? Terrible, terrible feeling. But do you notice that the psalmist doesn't let that feeling stop him from turning to the Lord? He knows he's still there. He knows that God can help him and so he prays. And his prayer begins with uh, recounting his circumstances. Lord. In there in verse 3 to 11. It starts in verse 3. For my days pass away like smoke. My bones burn like a furnace. Verse 11. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. See, the psalmist sees his life sort of like a puff of smoke that is there one moment and then gone the next. Or like grass, it flourishes in the morning and then as the, the hot sun comes up, it withers and dies by the afternoon. And it, it's partly due to his physical suffering we've got here. Uh, he feels pain deep in his bones, like a burning furnace, verse 3. As his body withers away in pain, he, he realises his own fragility, his own mortality of his life. And he goes on in verse 4. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones 
cling to my flesh. Now there's another another awful picture. He's, he's faint-hearted. He's, he's sapped of all emotional strength. So much so that he, he forgets to even eat his food. That he groans in pain. He's just reduced to you know, just skin and bone. It reminds me of a person that I, I met once, once in hospital uh, who was in such intense pain that all they could do was lie on the bed uh, and groan. It was terrible. But thirdly, the psalmist is, is sleepless and alone there in verse 6. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. And his psalmist feels completely isolated, completely alone. His sorrows and his worries are keeping him from sleep. He just can't switch off at night. I wonder if you've ever felt like that as well. You've ever felt so burdened by the worries of life, with perhaps money or our family or, or our work, that it just keeps us from being able to switch off at night. Or maybe have you ever moved away to another city? Uh, maybe you've come to this big city KL and then you've just felt completely isolated, completely alone. See, this psalmist knows what that is like too. Fourthly, the, the psalmist is experiencing opposition uh, and sorrow. It says in verse 8, All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. See, the, the constant taunts of his enemies just endure all day long. They even make the basic parts of life like eating just a misery to you. I wonder if you've ever been mocked like that uh, for following Jesus or whether you, you, you face constant pressures from your family or your faith. See, the psalmist knows again what it's like to be mocked, what it's like to face sorrow. And his sorrows here are terrible as well. I mean, the ashes here is a symbol of, of mourning and sorrow. You usually use it at funerals and things like that. And the psalmist's everyday meal is ashes, like bread. He's like the person who is, who is always down, who's, who's suffering from depression and, and constant sorrow. But I think, worst of all, the psalmist believes that the cause of of all these things, his aching bones, his broken heart, his loneliness, his sorrow, the opposition, well, it all comes from the very hand of God himself. Verse 10, For you have taken me up and thrown me down. See, he's suffering from sickness, loneliness, and the hands of enemies, and all these things, but he knows that ultimately, behind all of these things, the sovereign Lord, and all the things that he can. It is God who is responsible for cutting his days short. As it says in verse, in verse 23, He, God, has broken my strength in his court. He has shortened my day. It's interesting because the psalmist never confesses sin here. Uh, he doesn't say I've done something wrong or, or that. So we, we can't conclude that 
that all of this suffering and punishment that's come upon him is simply because he's done some terrible sin that he's been punished for. Uh, it's, it's much more likely that, that God's judgment has come upon Israel as a whole, as we'll see a bit later, and he's been fully caught up in that whole thing. But let me ask, what would you do if you were this man? What would you do if you were caught up with discerning pain and mortality and faint-heartedness and loneliness and opposition, never-ending sorrow? Would you be bitter, miserable? Would you give up on life and just want to die? Would you give up on God and tell him to get out of your life? Many people do that, don't they? Many people are angry with God for the suffering that they face in this life. Maybe that's you, I don't know. And as a result, they end up even more bitter. Their lives are even more hopeless. Because if God is not for us, what else is there to live for in this life? What other hope is there? There's a correct response to suffering the psalmist teaches us. It's not to turn away from God, not to turn your back on Him, but to turn to Him, to cling to Him, to pour out yourself to Him in prayer, holding on to His good purposes for your life. Because we know that whatever we go through, if God would, then He must be using that suffering for good purposes for you. And that's exactly what the psalmist does. It's a wonderful model for us. He turns to the Lord. He turns to the Lord in prayer. But but let's be honest for a moment here. There would be absolutely no point for him to turn to God in prayer and to, uh, to trust him with all of these things if there was absolutely no hope for his situation. If there was actually no reason to have confidence that God would listen and would actually care and do anything about it. It's very important to have our trust in something that is sure, something that is faithful. So he goes on and we, we see his confidence, his source of confidence uh, in verse 11 and following. Feel the contrast here. My days are like an evil shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O oh Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favour her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stone here and have pity on her dust. The nation will hear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will hear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. You find it hard to pray to God when suffering comes. And when, it, when times are hard, it's very easy to lose sight of the goodness and the greatness of God. But it's precisely when we look up and we remember God's honour, when we, when we remember his, his enduring eternal nature, that is when we can find some hope for our future. And that's exactly what the psalmist does. You see the contrast, verse 11, from himself? And then he looks up and he sees what God is like. And he remembers that so his days are fleeting, they are soon to be cut short. God reigns forever. 
and the Lord is full of His overwhelming compassion towards His people. Zion, which he mentions here, is the name of the of the hill uh, that the temple is built on uh, in Jerusalem, or was built on. Uh, it's a city where uh, where God dwells amongst His people uh, in the temple, and where the King, God's Christ, reigns. And it seems in this verse is that, that one of the reasons for the psalmist's sorrow is that Zion remains in ruins. It's, uh, verse 14, it does moves him to pity. Or verse 16, that the city needs to be built up again like it's been destroyed. But as the psalmist remembers this, this reign of God, eternal reign of God, he's comforted and he knows that that God will again manifest His glory in Zion. He will again be feared by, by all nations, even the king of all the earth. His desperate plea from the initial verses of 1 and 2 has turned to a confident assurance that God will indeed respond to His prayer. So by verse 17, He regards the prayer of the and does not despise the prayer. Well, this is the same confidence that we all have before God. And it says up, as you see on the screen, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. This is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we have asked of Him. Of course, that doesn't mean that we're going to get everything that we ask for. God promises to answer us according to his will, you notice from those verses. And even Jesus, the perfect son, was denied his request in the Garden of Gethsemane. However, we have a great confidence that whatever we ask, God will hear. God will act and respond in the way that will be best for us. Often the answer is probably not what we expect or what we, we hope for, but it will be the answer that is best for us. That's God's promise for us. Well, it's so assured it's the psalmist that God is going to look down and, and answer his prayer that he actually records some words of praise for the next generation to sing after him. You see in verse 18, uh, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he looked down from his holy height, from heaven the Lord looked at the earth, did you hear the groans of the people, did set free those who are doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem his praise, that people gather together, kingdom, and worship the Lord. The psalmist says this wonderful future before him, where God's name is going to be honoured and glorified by all people as they assemble to praise the Lord. So, so this man's suffering is so great, how greater that we could identify with him or imagine. This is a man who knows God. He teaches us that the way to deal with the sufferings of life to refresh ourselves in the character of God, to remember His goodness, to remember the power and the place 
Oh, prayer. Well, at the beginning of this talk, I, I, I referred to uh, Bronwyn Chin, uh, Richard Chin's wife, uh, who had that uh, pancreatic cancer. Uh, the day after they found out about the, the diagnosis, I was I sent an email uh, by Richard. This is to what he wrote in the day after that, that awful tragedy that he found out. My beautiful wife, Bronwyn, was diagnosed last night as almost certainly having an aggressive pancreatic cancer. We'd really love your prayers that if it's possible she will be healed. But we plan to endure in God's sovereign grace and are expecting him to take her home much sooner than we imagined. Please pray that, pray that each one of our children keep looking to Jesus and point others to him at this sad time. We're all devastated. We've wept a great deal. But we are bathing in the goodness of God in Jesus. To him be all glory. See, that is a man that understands Psalm 102. That is a man that knows the goodness and the grace of God. A man that knows that through anything, God can be trusted. Even through many, many tears. God will always be one who can lean wholeheartedly upon. Just like the psalmist, God, he leaves his hand, his future, in the hands of, of this eternal and unchanging God. And as we come to the end of the, the psalm, the psalmist is left with a question. And that is, is what about me? You know, all of the other generations after me are going to be fine, they're going to be restored and they're going to sing God's praises. What about me? So he pours out his, his last prayer to the Lord in verse 23. He has broken my strength in his course. He has shortened my day. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my day. Use his years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. So the world around us might seem very permanent. So it may seem like it's going to last forever. In the end it's just like clothes. They're going to slowly wore out and then be thrown away. When we compare them to God, the one whose days keep you forever. See, God is from eternity, the psalmist says, and He is eternally the same. So His prayer is, well, what about me? His, his days will perish in a moment. Do you notice how He ends? So, like, like everything else in the world, he knows he's going to perish, even perish prematurely by God's hand. He knows and he's comforted by the fact that his eternal, his eternal future, perfectly secure, that God's people will dwell with him throughout all generations. He ends in verse 28. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established for you. Well, 
as his servant pours out these desperate words to the Lord. Little would he to know that in God's own timing, God would, would answer this prayer in a way far beyond what he could have ever hoped or imagined. And the way that he answers this prayer in the end is his son, Lord Jesus Christ himself. For this prayer undoubtedly points us to Jesus, the afflicted man. Did you notice the psalmist's description of himself could well be a description of Jesus himself? See, like the psalmist, Jesus' days were cut short. He died at just 30 years old. Like, just like verse 3, my days pass away, my smoke. The night before he dies, Jesus was, was sleepless and alone in the garden of Gethsemane as he poured out his prayers before the Lord. By verse 7, I lie awake I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. And as he went to his death, Jesus was ridiculed and mocked. The elders insulted him, the guards mocked him, the crowd sneered at him, even the other criminals next to him were mocking him. It's just like verse 8. All the days my enemies taught me, those who derive me use my name as a curse. But most of all, Jesus was afflicted, of course, because he was taking on himself God's own wrath on our sin. Because as he died on the cross, Jesus was taking in himself the punishment that we deserve for our sin. God turned against Jesus. God punished him, poured out his wrath, instead of on you and me. This is like verse 10. Because of your indignation and anger, or you have taken me up and thrown me down. Jesus was the afflicted man. He knows what it is like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be alone. He knows what it's like to be kept awake at night by our worries. Now, every religion offers its own solution to the, to the problem of suffering. Uh, Islam says if you suffer, it's your own fault because you've been wicked. Uh, Hinduism blames suffering on, on karma. Uh, Buddhism just says that suffering is an illusion. And the reason why you suffer is because you care about things. So if you stop caring, you will stop suffering anymore. But the God of the Bible is so different. He's not the vindictive judge who loves to punish people. He's not the indifferent God who doesn't care for those in suffering. He's the suffering God. The God that is a person of Jesus took upon himself our fears and our suffering and our death so that we could be rescued from all of those things for eternity. See, in the person of Jesus, God himself has experienced suffering greater than we could imagine. For he bore that rock that we deserve for our sins. And he did it for us. There is, there is the love of God for us. When we are suffering, and we want to cry out to the Lord in our suffering, we can know for certain that God understands how we feel. 
He's not a distant God up there. He has felt it himself. And he will answer us for our good. And in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, God has given us the sure hope that we will be brought into his eternal kingdom. It's really interesting that the very word that uh, the blessed man of Psalm 102 uses to describe God at the end there, verse 25 to 27, as, as eternal and as unchangeable, are the very words that are picked up uh, by God as he speaks about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1. I wonder if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1 for a moment. On page 1203. Hebrews chapter 1. If you just scan through, you'll see that Hebrews chapter 1 is a, is a chapter about the eternal Son Jesus and how he is so far superior to all the angels around him. Uh, you can see in verse 8 that God is speaking about Jesus. And of the Son, he says, and he continues to speak in verse 10, quoting from Psalm 102 about Jesus. As God says, You, Lord, Jesus, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. See, Jesus is not just that afflicted man who suffered and died in our place. Jesus is this eternal son who has been raised up again and who has conquered death and who will live and who will reign forever. He's the one who has rescued us from our fear of death. And he is the one who brings us into his eternal kingdom. The writer to the Hebrews will go on to say in chapter 2, up on the screen, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In Psalm 102, as the, as the psalmist reflected on the very character of God, he was sure that God would restore a people for himself that he would restore a city where God would dwell, where God would reign, and his people would dwell secure. And here we see that, that, that it's that city, that, that heavenly Zion, is the one that God has prepared for, for all of his people. He has prepared a city in heaven for his people. Though in life we might face all sorts of suffering, although we might face all sorts of trials, Christians are looking forward to taking their place in heaven. Heaven where there will be no more sin or suffering or death anymore. Heaven where, where the, the writer of Revelation says, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. See, on that last day when Jesus returns, takes up time to be with him. The prayers of this afflicted man will be answered far beyond what he could have ever imagined. He will have a lifetime of paradise 
Well, we, we continue to live now, though, in a world that is full of suffering, a broken world. And as long as we live in this world, we are going to face suffering. We are going to face pain and lowless night, sleepless night. We're going to experience times where the pain is so great it's going to, it's going to bring us tears. So let me ask, what are you going to do when you face suffering in life? I guess you could be angry with God. You could be bitter with God. And you could just give up your place in heaven as a result. You could pretend that the suffering is not really actually there. And then you can leave yourself feeling empty and cold and hopeless. Or you could turn to Jesus. The one who understands your suffering because he has suffered himself. The one who has promised you a place in his eternal future where there is no more pain or suffering in Perhaps you might be able to say at that time with Paul, I consider that the present suffering are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. May we all keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, our Saviour, our eternal and unchangeable King. May we look forward to that hope of heaven. And then, as we remember the great love of our God for us, may our tears of sorrow turn to tears of joy.